But like I said, there's probably like 10 different things that have to happen. But one of the things I've gotten really excited about lately is kind of this notion of this realization that so much of what we became dependent on at the hands of the food companies, they stole from us. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with salt, sugar, and fat. I use them all in my cooking, judiciously, mind you, nowhere near house. And of course, but the, but the point being that they took those three ingredients from us and corrupted them into these weapons, if you will, that enable them to get and keep us hooked in their products. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Michael Moss had already risked his life as a reporter in Baghdad, where he interviewed Islamic militants and exposed that U.S. Marines lacked the body armor to protect themselves. He had also already run a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on food when he wrote Salt, Sugar, Fat, which has become one of the core books in the field of food and doof industries. For me, the title has become one word, Salt, Sugar, Fat, to which I often add convenience, so Salt, Sugar, Fat, Convenience. The book shows how the system, the food doof system as I call it, evolved to where the incentives and motivations lead all players, producers, marketers, buyers, to products and behavior that result in taking advantage of our built-in reward systems to induce craving, temporarily satisfy that craving while recreating it, and continuing that loop. The book pulls you along with detailed stories, often insiders where you can't imagine how Michael learned the details, that all combine to a greater story, our industrial doof and food system, how it got to be that way and how it works. The book was a number one New York Times bestseller. It won many awards, including a James Beard Award. And in our conversation that you're about to hear, he shared some backstory, not in the book, and we spoke about the environment and its values. Here's Michael Moss. Welcome to the Leadership Environment Podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Michael Moss. Michael, how are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you. And thanks so much for having me. Glad to have you. And I'm going to jump off with something that why you're preparing for this interview was one of the hardest preparations I've had. And it took me a while to figure out why. It's because and I don't know if I've said this about any book before, virtually every single sentence was meaningful and worth talking about. I would read a sentence and think, oh, that's what we should start talking about. And then I'd read the next sentence. And this is like Nabokov level writing that like, it's obviously totally different area. But I was like, I wanted to ask you, there's so many things we could talk about, about the industry, about food, about people's behavior, about your writing process, about what's happened since the book. But I wanted to start with that. It's like incredible writing. And as I'm starting to write my next book, it's, that's what got me. It's really, I don't know where to begin. It, it, I feel like the book was a journey for you. Yeah, and certainly the writing process was a journey. I, I, and I'll tell you a little story. I came out of the newspaper world where you weigh every sentence you write that goes into the story because you have a fairly limited amount of space and a fairly limited attention span of the reader. And when I first found out I could write this book, and I realized it could maybe have 180,000 words instead of 20,000 or 10,000 or 800 words that, that might go into a newspaper article. I got so excited because I, <laughs> I thought I could write about anything, right? And go off in these tangents and not worry about 
not worry about wasting space or the reader's time. And my dear editor at the time, Christine Kay, who has since passed away, she was the investigative editor at the New York Times, and she read an early draft. And she goes, you know, Michael, there's something in writing that we call exit rants. And those are those sentences you write thinking you can write anything because you have 180,000 words, but the reader hits those and they take the exit off the Michael Moss highway and close the book and go on to do something else. And she impressed upon me that every sentence, even in a book of many, many sentences and tens and tens of thousands of words, has to be meaningful and has to keep the reader's attention. So, so I thank you for that comment and the extent to which I was able to do it, I totally owe that editor's observation and her, and her reference to exit ramps in, in the world of writing. Did you think a lot about the reader? It sounds like you went from, at first you came from a place of have to write very, very tightly for newspapers to self-indulgence, but then I, I suppose that you really have to put the reader first and, and like what's going to draw them in oh, and keep them on. As a journalist, and that's what you're trained to do, is your responsibility lies with the reader. And I often have to remind myself when I'm interviewing somebody, and especially if it's an investigative type of journalism project, I have to remember my obligation isn't to the person I'm writing about or interviewing, it's to the reader. And that, that makes for some very interesting ethical situations. But by all means, the reader is putting down that money, they're buying a product. You're, I'm thinking about the reader in the reporting process, in the conveyance of information, in the, in the writing style. And Deb, I'm sure, I would guess you have multiple goals. Is the goal to change the reader's eating habits? Is it to change the voter in how they view an industry? Is it to inform and engage and entertain? Yeah, so, so again, I'm a journalist. I was, you know, I, I worked at three or four papers before I came to New York. And then I worked at, you know, an old paper called New York Newsday and then the Wall Street Journal and then the New York Times. And sort of that, that all of that experience was a training to not be an activist, but to be a journalist, to convey information. Maybe you would have a smidgen of hope that that information might help people to change their thinking and their actions and the way of the world. But by and large, the, the, the one thing you can retain as a journalist is that knowledge is power. And so my overarching goal, my only goal really in that sense was, was and hope was that all the information in the book would become empowering to people, knowing how, in this case, these companies got us to be so dependent on their products knowing that intimately as the reader of the book will do it will know will have once they, once they finish it's it's that knowledge that's that's actually incredibly empowering for us to make better decisions about about how we act to what we do and the whole food environment yeah you so you said empowering and and it certainly is for me personally it's been very clarifying like it's simplified what there's like a dividing line for me between fresh fruits and vegetables. And I mean, for me, salt, sugar, fat has become one word. I, I put convenience on there too. So salt, sugar, fat, convenience is like, to me, that's a word. And that, that's what 
it's brought to me is clarity. Like I can look at something and say, is that salt, sugar, fat, convenience? Yes, I'll pass. And it's so, it was, it really clarified and simplified things for me. What kind of feedback do you get from readers? That it worked, that it is in fact empowering and enabled them to see the world of food in this new way. And I'll, and I'll just tell you a story that the, when it came time to drop a cover for the book, the illustrator, he lived in the Hudson Valley of New York, read the manuscript, you know, went into the, his grocery store and pulled all his favorite products off the shelf, took them home and ripped out the lettering on the front of the packages and then rearranged those letters to spell out what really was going on inside those boxes and packages and bags, kind of what the food was actually all about. And you can still see on the cover the, the tear marks that he... Of this ransom note. On the letters. Yeah. It's very coarse and crude in the way that the processed food industry is coarse and crude, but also incredibly deeply... Ever. And that to me was sort of a very perfect example or illustration of what the book was about, sort of going inside this world of this highly processed food to show really what it's all about. And I intentionally have the commas out of salt, sugar, fat on the cover because salt, sugar, fat is in fact a single sort of entity. Uh, I mean, unholy trinity, if you will, on which this industry relies to, to make their food cheap and convenient and, and irresistible. So in my mind, also, salt sugar fat became this, this one thing that, that best illustrated the power that they have. And it's weird that you can look at, I can't just by visually looking at it, tell each of the letters where they're from, but it's remarkable how it brings you to your childhood. And, <laughs> and you must get a lot of stories from foods, obviously integral to life. So uh, it connects with everything. And, I hear for you, it's, you like chips a lot. And, and you've talked about that in interviews. And when I was a kid growing up, my father, my mom and stepfather too, belonged to this food co-op in Philadelphia, the Weaver's Way for people who not. And because it was, you know, kind of this liberal type place, we got Ben and Jerry's when it was, you know, it was like barely out of Vermont at the time. And I loved Cherry Garcia. And then I was kind of neat to see it grow in the rest of the world. And I was like, I knew about that first. And I just loved it. And so there's always ice cream in my freezer. And then there was, I liked Doritos for a long time. And I liked chips for a long time. But something about Snyder's of Hanover's, I don't know if you know the pretzel bits with the, like the flavor on the broken bits. And the yeah. flavor gets all over your fingers. And I would just eat it without touching it. I'd like eat it out of a bowl like a dog. So I'd have to do it secretly. And it was just indulgence. And I felt like, oh, I'm worth it. And Reading your book put it in a whole other context of how, I guess Ben and Jerry's, now it's Unilever, but it wasn't, I mean, it's all, it feels like it's all very, very well engineered. And like we look at Facebook and the addictiveness of, of phones and it's right, it's, it seems to be like the exact same playing field, the same, you know, it's one of them is like the little red dot to make people check mail. Oh, I, I think that's an exit ramp. If I say that little red dot on the Facebook thing, people are listening to this and like, oh, let me check my Facebook feed. And then they're gone. <laughs> and and didn't, didn't that experience though with the Hanover didn't want, didn't it make you go like, how do they do this? I mean, I was one of those obnoxious kids who always asked why. And my older brother and sister used to like pound on me when I did it because it always like slowed down our activities because I was going like, why? And 
how? And then later I realized somebody would actually pay me money to ask those questions. But, but that was my main goal, main question with the book is how did they do this? How did they make chips or pretzel bits so incredibly seductive? And I tell you, when I would be interviewing these scientists who engineered these products, who invented them, and they would, they would go into the details of that, of that invention. You know, my brain would start salivating. I mean, I'd end the interview and go downstairs or go out and buy a bag of chips. It just, you know, I had cravings just talking to them about their method and all of the points that they're hitting from the external packaging to the texture, to the noise, the sound that the food makes, to the color, and of course, the salt, sugar, fat. It's from a dispassionate standpoint, it's apt, extraordinarily fascinating, sort of how they managed to figure us out so exquisitely to maximize their sales. I feel like people talk about different industrial revolutions. Like, I don't know what number they talk about we're in now. But I feel like at the beginning, it was maybe the steam engine and coal and people figuring out how to use machines to save labor. So we could get trains to take us across the country and steamboats across the ocean, later washing machines and things like that. And it was mechanical engineers, then later electrical engineers to save us labor. Even that didn't make us that obese. I feel like whatever number industrial revolution we're on now, it's not electrical engineers, mechanical engineers. It's like brain engineers to figure out what, like, what will get us to crave and then will get us to satisfy that craving to re-trigger the craving. And that, so I feel like that's the industries of our time, whether it's figuring out how to get us to pick up the cell phone and keep it in our hands or to start eating the food and keep eating the food. I mean, if you talk about the Sacklers, then it's going to be the straight on opiates and, but it could be gambling and things like that too. That there, I feel like that's where our technology is these days. And that's one of my big takeaways from the book is that I look at things from a systems perspective and there's a playing field that every player is, in, is motivated to move toward higher profits, quarterly things and things like that. I think you mentioned that like, I, I don't know which one, like a food manufacturing place that had the ticker of its stock price in the lobby. And then you contrast that with um, Blue Hill guy, Dan Barber, who went to meet a guy about engineering uh, a squash. And the guy knew how to engineer it for durability, for size and for whatever, but he'd never bred something for taste. Right. Well, it goes back to the famous square tomato, which was bred to have a skin as thick as an orange peel. So you could chip the tomatoes and also package them in a box more efficiently than a round tomato. And it was absolutely perfect, except it had almost no taste at all. So you had to like dump a bunch of sugar in there to make to make tomato sauce if you were a manufacturer. So yeah, over time, kind of the industrialization of our food has led to the companies deciding what's important. And in their, in their view, it's low cost, it's speed and convenience, and it's kind of delicious, irresistible kind of deliciousness in, in, the, in the sense of exciting the brain to not just like it, but to want more and more of it. 
So that's the other thing you kind of see consistent across industries is sort of our abdicating kind of a, a share of responsibility, ownership over those kinds of decisions to these companies that then become kind of all powerful. Yeah, you were mentioning always wanting to ask why and find out why. And certainly, I mean, I have a PhD in physics, so like learning more about nature has always been something that really drew me deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm. As I've gotten older, I guess there are a few things that I found that helped me stop eating these things. When I was in college, a lot of people would not buy products that, from companies that did business with South Africa. This is during apartheid. And I think that's why I stopped drinking Coke or Pepsi. And then no one ever said boycott's over. But at some point, Mandela was president. I thought, I guess it's, I can go back. And I thought, I know why I stopped, but I don't remember why I started in the first place. And so I never restarted. And this worked. And then when I learned about hydrogenated oil, I learned growing up, the picture that I had, I don't know where I got this from, was that saturated fat is pretty unhealthy. Unsaturated fat, you know, it's got a lot of calories, but it's not so unhealthy. And hydrogenated is in the middle. What's the word for it? It's um, trans fat. And I thought, okay, it's somewhere in the middle. And then later I found out it's actually less healthy. It's more unhealthy than all of those. And they knew that. And yet they still sold it to me. And that made me I don't care what the thing tastes like. I don't want to do business with someone who says, tells me something that they know is not the case in order for them to sell more stuff. And bubbling hydrogen through oil is not something that you do in the kitchen. It's like a deliberate thing. And so your book satisfied for me. I wanted to find, what's the word, like proof, like tools for myself to look at the stuff, not just will it make my mouth water, but also do I want to do business with these people? Can I find ways to be proof against that stuff? And now a lot of the stuff is like, it, it just fills me with disgust, which I never would have expected when I always had ice cream in the freezer. And so did you find those tools that would enable you to shop better in a grocery store? Yeah. I mean, the hydrogenated oil was a big one. I mean, that came back, that came a while ago, but it was also just knowing about that it's engineered. It feels like my health is not of concern to them. Even the taste of it, I distinguish between tastes good and want more. And the difference, like if I eat an apple, it tastes good and I want more. I rarely eat two apples in a row. And I, I doubt I've ever eaten three apples in a row. It's, it still tastes the same. Right. But I don't want any more after a while. See, because I'm, I'm starting to change my mind about the nutrition facts box on food products. And I used to think that was really valuable to know you know, how much sugar and how much protein and, and how many calories there are in a serving of Cocoa Puffs. But increasingly, I've started to see even that providence of information as a game being played by the food companies. Yeah. So I think I, even as I mentioned in Social Fat, that they can, as our, I mean, we have, we have limited attention. And so over the years, we've become concerned about single ingredients in food, whether it's sugar or fat or salt or the type of oil. And they're very good at adjusting their formulas to take down whatever item is of our concern at the moment and then, and then take something else up because the bottom line is it has to taste fabulous and be seductive. They can't, they can't lessen the seductiveness of, of the product. But the other thing that bothers me about sort of nutrition facts and even the ingredient labels on, on, on processed food is 
I'm not sure how much it really tells you about the actual food itself and how much it really answers the question, is this real food that's going to be good for me? I mean, the numbers, if you look at the numbers on a box of Cocoa Puffs, you know, the company's been working to get their sugar down and they've been using sugar substitutes to keep the sweet flavor up. And and you look at those numbers and it, they don't seem terribly alar- alarming, right? So... But if you really thought about, like, what's missing there? Where's the fiber? Where are the the micronutrients that you would find in real whole grains uh, and real fruits? You know, it's not there. So so I increasingly are finding it difficult even to shop in a grocery store armed with even some knowledge of nutrition and looking at, at the ingredients label and the nutrition facts boxes. In my experience, as I... My experiment with avoiding packaged food, yeah, when I first had the idea, I thought, what am I going to do? I, it took me six months of planning, like what I'll eat on day one, day two, day three, and so forth. And then I realized that didn't help. I just, one day I just said, look, I'm not going to die if I just eat apples and oranges and you know, unpackaged stuff from the bulk section uh, for a week. And then I just go to the store and I was like, oh, crap, like, this entire store doesn't work. There's just the produce section. And even there, a lot of the produce stuff is wrapped. And then it forced me to learn to cook from scratch. And then I started going to the farmer's markets. And I don't know the last time I bought something that had a label on it. And so to me, a nutrition label looks to me like the cigarette thing that says smoking kills. It looks to me like, Mm. did you use the words regulatory capture in your book? Because it feels like there's a lot of that, of the industry that is supposed to be regulated has gotten the FDA or the USDA on their side and they make the rules for themselves. In so many ways, the companies are far more powerful than the agencies that are supposedly there regulating them on on our behalf. You can you can see that across the the spectrum. This is a very big, powerful industry. But I think I've been trying to reach an audience that's a little different than you. And I'll just give you an anecdote too. I gave a I gave a talk a while ago to the Kansas Hospital Association. And they were wanting to find ways to improve the quality of food in their member hospitals. But they hadn't even gotten to the point of thinking about the food they serve to patients. They were just talking about the junk in the little commissary that visitors would see when they came into the hospital, which was like all crappy snack food. And and But one of the people in the audience sort of raised her hand you see, and she said, you know, you really have to realize what a food desert, if you know that, mm-hmm. that expression, this entire state is. I mean, we have a huge agricultural system, but it's making field corn for high fructose corn syrup and animal feed and soybeans for animal feed and as a component in processed food. Nobody's growing fruits and vegetables that we can eat. We don't have farmer's markets. We couldn't even set up a farmer's market. So we don't have any farmers here growing that kind of food that you can get at farmer's markets in Brooklyn or, or Seattle, Portland, Oregon, or LA. You know, she's speaking here and she goes, you know, when I go shopping, my nearest food source is Walmart and it's like 80 miles away. So I can get there once a week And guess what I have to load up on in those once-a-week trips? Frozen food and maybe a little bit of of produce that won't go bad in a couple of days. And so 
that's the kind of food environment so much of this country is facing, whether they live in Kansas or in many parts even of New York City, um, where they don't have education, they don't have the background, they don't have the money, and they don't think they have the time to pay attention to food in a, in a, in a way that you can. I think that's the, that's the enormous. Yeah, there's a lot of regular listeners know that I, I get really annoyed. That, like People come over for my famous no-packaged vegetable stew a lot, and they say, oh, you can do this because you're privileged, and other people can't. And it's really gets to me because, one, they never ask, have you struggled in life? It's annoying to me. But also, they don't recognize how accessible this stuff is. Now, a farmer's market is, is not so available. But I can get, I've actually gotten to where dried beans are like a dollar, $2 a pound. Yeah. And they take a couple of minutes to cook in the pressure cooker and they never go bad. Right. Even something like an exotic, I'm putting air quotes around exotic food, like nutritional yeast, which I go through like crazy, also never goes bad. And you can get delivered, you know, if you don't want to go full on no packaging, you can still get like large containers sent to you. And it's not that much. I get that just to interrupt it. But I think you're privileged in two ways. One, you have knowledge. And that's something that's so lacking. Look, I mean, the schools used to teach home economics. Yeah. Until the 1980s, and even boys to some extent. I had a home ec class, yeah. Learn how to shop and cook and kind of think about, you know, food for like home. And that fell by the wayside as, as we paid attention to sort of other bigger societal things. So I think, I think you have the privilege of information, but I think you probably also have the privilege of not being bombarded by the market of the companies, which will take you, which take most people off their game, even if they get to the point of pressure cooking grains, you know, for the family meal, man, they're going to get hit the next day with advertising on TV and social media. And their kids are going to be clamoring for those Oreos. And it's like, ah, you know, there, so many of us are caught in the system, again, with the companies are dominating our, the food environment in ways that, that we can't get out of. I'm trying to work on that. The last public presentation I gave before the pandemic hit was I went up to the, I met a single mom from the Bronx and she was, I said, come on over. I had her on the podcast too. I said, come on over for some famous no packaging vegetable stew. And I cooked it for her. And so she invited me up to the Bronx and I went up and brought my pressure cooker up there with the ingredients and I cooked for them. And the first person after I finished, I said, step-by-step step, how to do what I do, because it's remarkably cheaper and doesn't take much time. And I think it will involve kids. I don't have kids, but I think when I make it for my nieces and nephews, they don't know what it is and they taste it like, I want more, even though it's all healthy ingredients. Mm -hmm. So the first person who raised their hand at the end said, you know, we can't do what you do because we don't have all that stuff up here. But the next person said, you know, actually, I know where this is available. And the next one was like, I know where that's available. And by the end of it, they were like, oh, this is doable. And the woman who invited me, Rhonda, she said, you planted the seed. Of course, it won't change overnight. My sister works for Grow NYC, which administers the, the farmer's markets. Yeah. And so one time I met her up at, I mean, most of the time I go to Abington Square and, and Union Square because they're the closest ones to me. But once I met her up at one of the ones in the uh, farmer's market in the Bronx and the farmer's market there consists of like five tables, which is like nothing compared to Union Square. But within view, there was like, there might've been a hundred places that sold you know, Dunkin' Donuts stuff. And people coming and going out of those like crazy and no one's buying the kale. Also, do you, have you ever worked with Harlem Grown? The, um, it's this guy during the 2008 recession, he was, his work was really not going well. So he volunteered at a school in Harlem. He's from uh, Riverdale. 
And he just went to the school and started volunteering because he had free time. And across the school was an empty lot and he petitioned the city to do something with it. And he got the right to do something with it. So he, he got the kids to help him clear out the lot and they made Harlem Grown's, they call it an urban farm. I'd call it an urban garden. So he tells a story about the kids built the planters and filled them up with dirt and stuff like that. And then he said he got some charred seed and he said, okay, let's plant the chard. So they put the chard seeds in the dirt, covered up, and the kids go, where's the chard? <laughs> well, it has to grow. So a while later it grows and he gives the kids the chard uh, to take home. And now they produce tons and they give it out. It's, it's all given out. Nice. And it's like the only place around there. It's 120, 130th, 120th Street, uh, just above the park. Anyway, he, they take it home and they come back in the next day and he goes, how was, how was the chard? And they go, our moms threw it out. What? They didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, how many generations back you had to go to where they, you'd make food from scratch, that was gone. Right. It's very easy to say this is the way things are. It's harder to say, what am I going to do about it? And I don't expect myself to change the world all by myself. But I, I have my next, this is going to be an online demo. So I'll set up my camera in my kitchen and I'm going to cook my famous no packaging vegetable stew with a little presentation beforehand. And I want to change these things. I endeavor to make my stuff accessible and I've struggled to make sure, yes, I do have a farmer's market nearby that most people don't. But when the pandemic began, I went to stay at my mom's, which is a hundred miles outside the city. And they got a food, what's it called? Price right or right? A regular supermarket. And it was like, I found myself talking the way the people that I found annoying spoke, which was this stuff is all shipped in from California. There's no seasons here. It's all the same. It's all like perfect. And they were fine with that. And I, I mean, they're happy to get vegetables, even though whether they're in season or not. So I was like, I guess maybe I just have to accept that. And they had a, the bulk section, but it was all nuts and, and candy, not beans. So I had to get beans from packages. And I thought, well, I guess I just have to accept that here. And I thought, no, they do have farmer's markets. They're just in the summer. But I went to the web pages and I started calling people up. And it turns out they do have stuff not in the sun, off season. And you have to call in and stuff like that. But there's, when you start building community, it happens. That's been my experience. So I wasn't up there long enough to really, really get into the community there of farmers and gardeners. And, but I think that if I stayed there longer, I would start contributing to that. And I would start getting back from that. And so I want to change that. I think that's fabulous. And I often thought about you know, how you would... Overeating, obesity, other you know health problems from food is so pervasive, and we so many of us have a lifetime of bad habits. You know, I often thought about you know how do you change a lifetime of bad habits? And there's there's probably ten things you'd have to do, hopefully all at once, in order to really start changing the eating habits of a significant number of people. And and one of the things would be, and I often dreamed about just taking one zip code in New York or someplace and doing an experiment where you could change all those 10 things. And probably the first thing would be were those would be those kids. You'd want to have a school garden where they could see what a radish looks like when it grows so they can get excited about that radish. But then they'll take that radish home to their parents. And so the parents are going to then have to have a way to buy more of those radishes in their local grocery store and or if they're shopping online there has to be you know a system where they can be nudged toward buying those radishes as opposed to the the junkier food but like i said there's probably like 10 different things that have to happen but one of the things i've gotten really excited about lately is kind of this notion of 
this realization that so much of what we became dependent on at the hands of the food companies, they stole from us. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with salt, sugar, and fat. I use them all in my cooking, judiciously, mind you, nowhere near. It tastes good, house. yeah. And of course. But the, but the point being that they took those three ingredients from us and corrupted them into these weapons, if you will, that enable them to get and keep us hooked on their products. And so I had this notion, what if there are things we can steal back from them that would you know, empower us in eating better? And one of the most kind of obvious things, it's a, you know, it's a food in the grocery store that involves high technology and it's inexpensive and it's, and it's delectable and all those. But, and I'm talking about none other than frozen vegetables, which has changed. The freezing technology has changed remarkably in the last 20 years so that one can argue that a bag of frozen blueberries that's been flash frozen in the field can be even more nutritionally powerful than, you know, a pint of fresh blueberries that's been sitting in your fridge for a week or the warehouse or that came from California, mind you, too, because freezing can allow you to eat local. So I would maybe encourage you when you're formulating your pressure cooker vegetable dinner to think about the prospect of adding some frozen vegetables in there and sort of looking back as a way of incorporating and stealing from the company something they stole from, from us and using that to empower our own cooking. Because people can buy, your relatives can buy frozen foods out in the middle of the country, frozen fruits and vegetables that are, that are really pretty fabulous. Yeah, I shoot for no, no packaging, but I would certainly sacrifice no packaging in favor of what, exactly what you're talking about if you're in an area without all that stuff, without the access that I, that I currently have, but I want everyone else to get as well. Right. I, have to, I have to comment that I was watching the video of you with Michael Pollan at the New York Times set up <laughs> where he gets the frozen uh, spinach out of the freezer, which they actually have a camera behind the thing showing and picking it out. I was like, how staged was that? But the first comment or one of the early comments is, I don't think Michael's on board with the frozen spinach. <laughs> oh, why did he scowl? The person was, was, I think he was saying, Michael Pollan was saying, you know, this is something that's processed. It's clearly frozen. Yeah. It's like, that's not like unprocessed. But he's like, I'm, I'm a fan of that. I have no problem with getting frozen spinach. Yeah. And you didn't, there was on the video, I don't think you, you commented on it, but I think someone was commenting on your facial expression. You'll have to look it up again. That I think you were looking at it like maybe like, Mm, not sure. Oh, I was at the time. Yeah, maybe I was at the time. I've certainly come around. I probably was like a little like, oh, are you kidding? But yeah, I'm a big fan of frozen vegetables now for people who don't have access to, to farmer's markets or haven't gotten to that step yet. Right? It's all it's sort of incremental. I mean, the other thing yeah. about changing your eating habits is that, you know, the world will intercede, you know, and your best intentions will fall by the wayside when your kids start yelling at you for attention or you have to run out the door to go to your second job or the TV commercial comes on and reminds you of your deep childhood memories from yeah. Cheetos and Doritos and, and you find that to be hard to resist or your family goes, okay, that was a great meal, but how are we going to get excited about that every day for the week? Like what's your, what's your month long menu plan here? Can you really keep, a family and ties. So, so that's just the other challenge that people like you are facing who want to change the system, which is you're working in this broader environment that the companies 
control, and they do so very cunningly. Yeah, they definitely have. As a professor, I read Clay Shirky, I think, wrote a piece on when he teaches, he used to say, you can use laptop screens, you can be open if you want. And then he realized the engineers at Facebook and you know their, their peers are much better at getting students' attention and holding it than he is. It's like he's, like, he's not even close. And eventually he realized if the student would think, I'll just really see if I have any emails, just a quick check for one second. And then like 30 minutes later, they hadn't paid attention to class for a long time because those engineers are much better at what they do than he is at what he does. And I recognize that. One thing that got me on changing sustainability behavior is a past guest of mine, Sandy Reisky. He, he's big in solar and wind. One year, companies he started were responsible for, I think, 10% of the, na- the entire nation's increase in wind power production. And he also started a nonprofit to help reduce consumption, Generation 180, and put solar on schools and things like that. And he said, the number one predictor of someone installing solar on their homes it's not how much money they would save. It's not their politics. It's not government incentives. It's how many of their neighbors have already installed solar on their home. Mm. Hence the strategy of this podcast. I call that community. I mean, there's lots of studies which I've read up on and so forth. But generally, there are a lot of behaviors, and eating is one of them, drinking and smoking also, where what your neighbors do is very influential. I just spoke with a woman in Sweden who has been working on no flying for a long time. And she says in Sweden, not the whole country, but the large parts of it, they've made the switch where it's normal not to fly. You don't need an explanation. You don't need justification. Your neighbors have, you know, they've switched to taking a boat to England instead of flying uh, or just, you know, taking a staycation. They've made that switch. Mm -hmm. It's normal. You don't have to do it. She said that a couple articles by some very famous Swedes in the Swedish papers made a big difference. Hence the strategy of this podcast is to bring well-known people that people know. <laughs> and it's not the only thing, not by long shot, but I'm only one person. But in, in a second, if you're, if you're game, I'll walk you through that process I was talking about before about changing a habit of someone. And then I think people can hear, oh, it's not just me. Right. Yeah, no, that's fabulous. One by one by one. I think that, the, that, can, that can work, definitely. It's like, that's usually powerful. I hope so. Someday I'll have Oprah or LeBron. And then I imagine. 10 million people will be like, oh, she's doing it. I can do it too. Yes. Then you get these influences. But then you also have to realize sort of how deep does that go? They may, I think it's better to know somebody in person who's changed something in their life. I think that's a, that it goes deeper into your psyche, I think, than a celebrity on, on television. I think, but uh, I'm just guessing. Yeah, that's why I can't stop there. Right. <laughs> it's, of course. So yeah, if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll do that process. They're great. Is the environment something that's a big deal for you? Is it something, not a huge deal, but is it something you think about or you care about or act on? Yeah, in many, in, a, in many levels. I mean, I grew up in California backpacking in the Sierra Nevada and so wilderness. And I've you know, spent time in Alaska. And so pure wilderness is a, is a concept that's hugely important to me, even if I never went to another wilderness area again, knowing that they exist is a big part of my comfort and feeling of love for the planet. And environment to me also means garbage on the sidewalk and traffic in Brooklyn, which has exploded after the pandemic lockdown as 
people are driving instead of taking the subways or buses as a as a security measure. And so so those two very different contrasting environments are are huge to me. Our clothing environment, you know, I have a sixteen year old who the other day was wanting to buy some new shirts and he picked out uh, some from a couple different companies. And one of them I'll just say was Patagonia, which seems to have some very ethical and deep thinking about kind of the source of their clothing in terms of who makes it and, and how is the cloth, the material interacting and treating the environment. And is it a piece of clothing you'll wear for a long time or will you wear it once and throw it away? And there's this whole thing in clothing of fast clothing as in mm-hmm. fast food. And we were having this conversation and it's, it's, so you can look at a lot of aspects of your, of your lives. And I think the, the term fast food can apply to so much else in our, in our living environment and the consumer society. So much of what's, what's wrong with the world now is this, this, impulse we get to buy stuff just the buying we don't even want to own it for very long maybe look at it which is pressing the button the buy button on your laptop is is the is the is the goal the end goal of that process and that applies to food as well as as as, as well as other items so yeah environment in, in a very broad sense is usually important have you seen the movie the the true costs no speaking of fashion ah. I'll send you a link afterward because it's a free download. It's, but it's, it's a documentary on fast fashion. And it's, uh, nice. man, that's whatever I thought I knew before. It was very little compared to what the situation is. Mm. So I heard a lot of things. I mean, I heard like a wonder and a beauty and an immersion. I'm, I'm curious with the Alaska and the, the, I think you said the Sierra Nevada mountains. Is it, are there specific scenes that you think of or specific experiences? And do they still resonate? Like when you decide something, a behavior today, do those things, are they maybe subconsciously or consciously there? Yeah, I carry those moments with me. I mean, I love, I love to get above tree line where there's rock and ice and sky and the air is a little thin. So you start feeling a little giddy. Everything sort of comes into sharpness. Maybe there's a little bit of danger too that wakes you up to like rock climbing. Well, absolutely. That feeling carries with me in my day-to-day life, whether whether it's cooking or learning to play the cello, which I happen to be doing too. So I'm I'm tapping that emotion from being in those environments in kind of my ordinary day life, sometimes often probably unconsciously. Based on these experiences, based on these feelings, I invite you at your option, to think of something new that you're not already doing, to act on those feelings. And before answering, most people hear a question that I didn't ask. I'm not asking what's the biggest thing you could do, or what's the most important thing to do, or what Greenpeace says you should do. It may affect the environment, but it's really more about acting on those feelings that you have. And it has to be just something new that you're not already doing, something that you do yourself. I have all these leaders, and they often say, oh, I'll get my team to do it but it's something for you to do yourself and something with a physical component, not just reading or raising awareness. And most people when I ask, they're like, well, I'm already doing this and this. And it usually takes a couple of times going back and forth. And then something often pops up of something to do. And it doesn't have to be forever. It doesn't have to be like a big life-changing thing. It could be a very small thing. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you mentioned flying. I mean, the hardest thing for me to give up would be flying. So it doesn't have to be the hardest thing. Oh, right. The more important thing is that it resonates with those things that motivate you, whether it's traffic or whether it's uh, the mountains and being above the tree line or spending time with your child on clothing. Usually something coming from something that's already in you. Right. So one thing I could do that would kind of tap, connect with that. And what did I say? I love to be above, above tree line in this rarefied. The thing that that enables me to do being in that environment is to focus. And I think that so much of the day for me, I can, I can be sleepwalking through the day going through the motions, whether it's work or play, and not being more focused. So, so I would love to be able to pick a moment of the day when, when I can bring all of that focus that I can find in the mountains to bear on whatever that situation might be, whether it's talking to my kids or preparing a meal. Does that make sense? Yeah, there, so there has to be some component of it that has an environmental effect. So if, right. like, actually, it's funny you mentioned Patagonia because Vincent Stanley, who's a the director there, he's, um, he's been with the company since 73. He was on this podcast. And his was, at least one day a week, he was going to not turn on his computer. Or maybe it was half a day. Mm. And he actually just sent me a book of poetry that he wrote in that time. Oh, that's nice. And it's, very, it's touching, Yeah. Someone else had a no screen time thing for himself. If there can be some environmental component where it has decreased emissions or increased plant life or something like that. Right, 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 right. So I have to give it some thought. Nothing's coming sort of immediately to mind. There's a lot of things I do already. Reducing screen time has been sort of one of those things that kind of comes and goes in terms of my adherence to it. But at the moment, I can't suggest a single thing. If it's okay, I'll persist a bit because sure. usually people often say, oh, that, I could do that. Like, or they'll say, oh, I've been meaning to do that for a while. And it's often usually something like just below the surface right. that people, are, people are often dismiss it because they feel like, ah, but what I do doesn't really matter. But the question isn't whether it matters. It's whether you'll get what the experience will be like. Right, 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 right. It's not a forever change. It could be an experiment for a bit. So if there's something that didn't really work before, you could say, well, let's try it again for one month or for two weeks or right. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I love, I love screen time on the phone. That's something that I tried before and it didn't work. I even, I even went to the extent where I converted the phone into black and white to eliminate uh-huh. the colors because colors are such a powerful attraction in food as they are in the tech world. And I lived for that for a few days before I sort of went back to the color and kind of forgot about it. So, so I know you mentioned that, but that's certainly something small that, that would contribute to a huge sort of environmental improvement. If I could just reduce the screen time. Okay. That, I mean, that would work. And people have come back with very interesting experiences from, from doing something like that. So the next step would be to make it a smart goal specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. So there are different ways to make it specific and, and for how long you do it for. It could be a week, a month, a year, but is it like turning the screen off by a certain time or limiting a certain number per day or 
maybe not when you were not with so it's a person. Be, be cumulative because they already I already get a message once a week on screen time. So there's already a program built into the phone uh-huh. that tells me how much I'm on it. So that's a quantifiable thing with an immediate sort of data input that I can get. So how could you decrease it? How? By not by 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 throughout the day. Well, it's by every time I pick up the phone, stop and think. Or I mean, how could you quantify it? Oh, right. So you cut, a, cut it in half, for example. So, you know, the message comes across, I think it's on a Sunday morning saying, you know, you use the phone for 13 hours this week. It's probably more than that because I use it for work as well. But you could cut it in half. Want to give that a shot? That sounds a lot to me, but sure. Okay. Then if cutting it in half for, uh, and how long do you think it'll take before you get, I'd love to have you on or a second like time. batshit crazy and have to revert. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, I'm going to ask you, like, how did it go? And for you to say... I would say a week would be nice. <laughs> would, you game, would you be game for recording a second conversation a week? Yeah, of course. Okay. So that's this process that I do with a lot of my guests. And then I have them on a second time. And a lot of it is, I think, guests... I predict, and I don't want to lead the witness here, but I predict you're going to like it a little more than you expect. Right. And I, I think also that a lot of listeners will see the, the range of, actually, not just listeners, I, on a personal level, when I first started asking people, what does the environment mean to you? I really thought everyone would have the same answer that I did. And I've never heard the same answer twice. Mm-hmm. It's different for everyone. It's, it's a really wonderful part of the conversation that opens up my horizons to, you know, you grew up, it's more mountainous. A lot of people, it's more ocean. A lot of people, it's not childhood at all. It's like, some movie that they saw. And there's a, I wouldn't say a full on vulnerability, but it's, it's a tenderness that seems to come out. Mm-hmm. And I think people underestimate how much they'll like bring those feelings back up again, mm-hmm. acting on them. Mm-hmm. And so a joke I used to make was that I used to say, however much you think you're going to like it, I bet you're going to like it more, even taking into account what I just said. And so much so that I, I'll bet you that you'll like it more than you expect. And you can even just lie to me and say, you can win the bet just by telling me <laughs> the opposite. But I think you'll like it so much that you can't lie. Right. Like, nice. Okay, we'll see. Yeah. So after we, hang, after we stop recording here, if it's okay, we'll schedule the next call. Okay. I'm curious, you, you listened to that episode I did on Doof, on my, on my term for, and you said, oh, I'm curious if all my family and friends are all starting to use it now. The, uh-huh. the term, they're like, oh, it really helps. It's like, I just, that's doof and this is food. Right. And saying ultra processed, it still says food, like fast food, yeah. junk food. And people who are addicted can say, well, if I was on cocaine, I could just not get cocaine, but I can't not eat. I got to have food. Yes. But Doritos aren't, to me, Doritos, have, they're doof, they're not food. Yeah. It's not working for me, maybe because of the word association with doofus. Mm-hmm. And in a way, you could kind of label that food as doofus and stupid, right? Not clever. But I think that was my re- immediate kind of response was that it had that association, which didn't, which didn't work for me in thinking about all the food I wanted to eat less of. I still like the term, but, but it's a struggle. Like, what do you call all this stuff? It's Yeah. It's so varied. And for me at the moment, my favorite word for 
all those products you're trying to eat less of is just simply fast. Mm -hmm. It's fast in the way it was created, but it's also fast in the way it goes through our body. And of course, the big exception to that is water. (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. But by and large, when you look at highly processed food, it's, you know, it's cheese that's made in a single day because it's not, you know, it's processed cheese, not made the way cheese is made. And it's, and it's food that lacks fiber and water so that when it hits your system, it's going through you really fast and doesn't allow you to kind of put the brake on overeating. It's high density. So, so for me, just personally, the word fast really applies. And I also love how the fast food industry came into the grocery store by introducing products we used to only buy a drive-in in our restaurants. So then now going in, the, the grocery store itself became full of traditional fast food drive-in restaurant kinds of food. So it also works for me kind of in the, in the grocery environment too. And the historical aspect of it. But certainly coming up with a word, whatever it is, I can see how using that can be, you know, could be empowering to you in terms of trying to change your habit. Because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to change these lifelong bad habits for a, a new, better habit, right? And that's, and I think anything that helps you do that is, you know, when people are trying to lose weight, if they're significantly overweight, they'll often put a picture of themselves in the refrigerator at the old weight, just to sort of remind themselves of kind of what they're trying to change. I mean, that's another kind of approach to that. You have to remember, too, when you walk in the grocery store, everything about the shopping experience is designed to get you to leave your sense of yourself at the front door. And so the the music playing in the background, the the bright colors, even the layout of the store steering you through the, to the middle part of the aisle, getting you to spend more of your attention there, is all designed to get us to forget about the implications of our purchase decision and to shop impulsively. That's a huge word um, in the food industry is impulsive shopping. That's why they started putting stuff at the checkout lane that we couldn't resist, knowing that when we're standing in line waiting for our turn to to pay, we would like grab that stuff and put it in the cart. And, and the soda company started putting soda coolers at the checkout line to to latch onto that sort of impulse buying. So, so as a corollary, anything you know that works in your life to sort of get you to slow down think about your decisions that you're making in food, whether it's just calling the food you don't want to eat a name, I think it'd be helpful. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. 
That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Yeah, you summed up a lot of what some main takeaways from salt, sugar, fat. And maybe let's wrap up there. I mean, I would love to talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and I'm sure none of it would be boring. It would be more and more fascinating. Although I would like to close with a question. Is is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or any message for the listeners beyond what you just said? Oh, and are you working on something new? I do have a new book, but I did want to raise one thing. So when I, for exercise, I've run most of my adult life, all of my adult life, sometimes excessively. And when friends would kind of start running, well, often they would start and then stop a week later. And I would often sort of think or sometimes say to them, I mean, one of the, one of the tricks to developing a new habit, like exercise, is to do it daily or regularly, until you get to that point where not doing it feels worse than doing it. And that kind of works for running because none of us are like that in love with running, but we do it because not doing it feels worse. And that's kind of the inflection. That's kind of like the, the inflection point where you're getting yourself hooked on a new habit and you're deepening kind of those memory tracks in the brain. And it's starting to change the way you feel when you're exercising. So so here's my question to you. When So when I'm trying to use the smartphone less, is there a, is there a corollary? Is there something you would, you would say like you got to go at it for two weeks or until you get to that point where opening that phone feels worse than not? So it's, it's a negative, right? Opening, using that phone feels worse than not using it. Well, one of the things I work on here is that I hope that you start associating not using your phone with Alaska, Sierra Nevada, and clothing that lasts. Right. And that it starts feeling like this isn't everything, but for those associations to start forming. The other thing is that you're going to have to, most people have to develop little tricks, the things that get them not to turn on the phone. Like, what do you do instead? Yeah. Those are the tools that you start building up the next stuff with. Right. Okay. So when you said half, it's also you only get to find that out. At the, can you look it up in the middle to see on any given day how, far, how much you've done so far? Probably. Because otherwise it's tough. You don't know if you're halfway or a third or two-thirds until you get that text or whatever. I'll gamble, actually. I think it's nicer not to know. Then there's lots of things about forming habits. One of them is the doing leads you to learn what you don't know. Yeah. Like, it sounds to me like you've wanted to lower your screen time. Otherwise, you wouldn't have downloaded the app that made it black and white. Right. And you find value in what you replace it with. Yeah. So I suspect, that, I suspect that you'll talk about what you did instead, that you'll say what made it work, what didn't work. Before doing it, it's tough to know what's going on. And I think that what we're talking about there, too, is, sort of, is, is changing what we value. And I think that's one of the most interesting things in changing habits, whether it's our eating habits or our, our, our moving through the world or consumption habits generally. It's, it's how, do you, how do you get to the point where, again, you're standing at the Starbucks and you've got your latte, you're looking at the pastry. How do you get to the point where your brain, you can get your brain to start thinking about what are the implications of eating that highly processed sugary pastry along with the coffee? Is it changing what we value? 
And, and as it is now, we value that immediate gratification, that taste, that sensation, that purchase of the, of that pastry. How do we change what we value? So we get to the point where we look at that pastry and we go, you know, and psychologists work with people. They do this in, in addiction situations too. They, you start associating that pastry with looking horrible in your bikini or looking sick at an older age or looking at the, you know, the rainforest clear cut for the palm oil going into it or, or whatever sort of negative associations you want to have in that. But I think that's the bigger thing that's going on here is changing what we value as opposed to letting the companies impose their values and telling us what to value. Yeah, I would say that it's not new values so much as getting, I think the values for health and longevity or along sustainability for clean water, clean air, clean land, I think that's, that's not a new value. I think we're people who, the engineers who get you to think about the craving or get the craving to activate, they can shove those values down so they feel deprioritized. And that's why I start with what does the environment mean to you? I want to get those values out first and get those on. When I'm at a store and I see something packaged, I've learned through habit to, make, to associate it with like the giant mountain of trash outside of New Delhi, or in many of them. They're all over outside New Delhi. And do I want to feed that for, that'll be for, there for another thousand years in order that I satisfy my craving for a little bit? Now, if I, these are just words that for most people are like, yeah, but I'm hungry. But I was too. I used to feel that way. And over time, I now like here, this is this little nectarine that sorry, the listeners can't see it. But I was walking my friend to pick up her CSA last week. And when she picked it up, they said, we got extra food that people didn't pick up. I got free nectarines. And it's all so good. And this association of like, they gave me a free, four free nectarines because I was friends with her. She was friends with them. The opposite of fast or doof is to meet connection and community. And it's easy when you're there to say, well, should I get the stuff at Starbucks? And you look around, well, everyone else is. That's, I think, okay, I guess I will because everyone else is. And I'm trying to, my big thing is to get community to think of the people who are not getting it. I like what you said about existing value too, because I think one of, the, one of the problems in, say, teaching kids to change their values and think about what they're eating is that you're, they don't, they don't know, you have to tell them first what the consequences are. So you eat that Oreo, you're, you know, you're helping to, as I mentioned, deforest the rainforest and you're losing, you're going to lose orangutan habitat. And, it, you know, so they learn that they go, okay, that's horrible. I didn't know that. But if I hear you correctly, what maybe is a better thing is to, first sort of tap into their existing knowledge and their existing values. Like they may not know about the orangutans and palm oil and the rainforest, but they know about some other animal that they love that lives in the wild or some other aspect of the environment. And so maybe eating that Oreo won't be directly linked. They can connect, they can relate more to that the new information that they have about that specific product causing that specific problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. And we don't know until we ask what it is for them. Only they know. It's in their heads and their hearts. Right. So one of the first steps of leading someone effectively is to know what their values are, know what their associations are. If I said to you, 
Think about the ocean when you do this, but you grew up in the mountains, it probably wouldn't resonate so much. Another one of my clients, he grew up by the ocean. And so he's a C-suite executive at this major, major multinational. And I say, what does the environment mean to you? And he starts talking about when he was growing up on the beach in uh, North Carolina. He said, I was always the last one in. It would be after dark. I'd still be out in the water playing around. He loved that. A little while later, a little while before I was speaking to him, which is to say, I don't know, a year or two ago, he had some project in India. And he had occasion for some reason to walk on some causeway out to some small island. And as he's walking out, the water splashes up and splashes and gets him wet. And he said it was oily. The ocean water was oily. He said, I I wouldn't go in that water. And then something similar happened when when he was in Singapore. And so I said, well, then I said, I invite you at your option to think of something you could do to act on those feelings. And with him, I was meeting in person. And he looks down at the bottle, the single-use bottle of water that he had sitting there. And he goes, I'm not going to get any plastic water bottles. This is in the office. And I can just go get water from the sink. This is before the pandemic. And the next time I met, I was met with the woman who reported to him. And she said that he used to buy bottled water by the crate. And he hadn't bought any bottled water since then. And then the whole team stopped getting the bottled water. And for him, at that's, I would have no idea of him in the ocean before I asked him. Once he started sharing it, it was really, he was, I mean, I didn't do justice to what he talked about him playing in the ocean when he was a kid, nor to what he felt with that oil. But when he was not getting bottled water, I'd have to ask him. I, I haven't talked to him in a while, but he was, I believe that he was thinking about making the oceans more available for future kids. I, I'm not sure. It's him. I don't create that for him. I, I make him feel comfortable sharing. So to go back to my 16-year-old who wanted to buy all those neat shirts because they're super cheap and fast. How would you open that conversation other than the way I did it, which was, look, I mean, well, you know, you have to, there's a hidden cost to that cheap. There's a reason that those shirts are so cheap. It's the workers, it's the material, it's the fact that they're designed to be worn once or twice, and then you have to discard it and where that ends up. That was like way too preachy for my taste. How would you steer that conversation to figure out what he valued in clothing specifically or? What this technique gains is that the, the motivation is intrinsic, not extrinsic. Right. What I lose is the first thing that they do may be very small or maybe unrelated to anything that I consider important. What I gain is that whether the first thing is big, small, or what I consider relevant or irrelevant. If they like the experience, they'll want to do it more. The next thing is usually the bigger one. And the next one, will, then I can start going in new directions. So if I want, I'm not a father, so I can't speak directly to what it's like to speak to a, a son. But if I want a son to do something specific, that's going to be tough. But if I want him to feel a sense of meaning and purpose acting on the environment, I'm going to get that. And then once I have that to work with, then I'll, I'll see if I can move it into new areas. Right, 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 right. Now, in the case of clothing, that that documentary, The True Cost, is tremendous. Yeah. And it's, it's at this place called Thought Company, I think. Anyway, it's, it's, it's someplace made it free uh, to watch any time. And that one, in that, I, think I, I think this was before we started recording, but people who have had an experience where what they do matters, mm. they tend to want information because it will reinforce the, the motivation and the expectation of success. Mm. People who have had an experience, why I don't like to start with people and say, I wouldn't have said to you, why don't you go without straws for a week? 
a lot of people have this experience where they get told, here's one little thing you could do for the environment. The New York Times is big on this. And oftentimes people go for a week without straws and the world is pretty much the same after that week as it was before that week. Maybe they'll go six months without straws. And all that happens is that they've had a couple of uncomfortable conversations with the waiter who brought them something with a straw and they have to send it back or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, this proves or this, this confirms that what I do doesn't matter. And now more information discourages them and just makes them feel bad. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they do it for their own reasons and after they do it, they feel like, well, that improved my life. Even if, even if the effect on the world is small, I like it. Mm-hmm. Then they want to do more. That's where I am. It's like when I... I'm training people to do new offshoots of this podcast. So there's Leadership in the Environment Sweden has begun. Leadership in the Environment Italy is about to begin. Leadership in the Environment London looks like it's in the works. So other people to reach audiences that I don't reach. So this process that I just went through with you, they're doing it with me. <laughs> so I'm already not flying. I pick up garbage every day. It takes me two years to fill up a load of garbage. And like, okay, what's something you could do for the environment? I'm like, I'm already doing a lot. <laughs> but I've now realized, this is a blog post of mine recently. I don't have to steward. I get to steward. Mm-hmm. I've reached the point where the more challenging it is, the more I expect I'll like it. But that's most people aren't there yet. Right. Well, we've gone on for a while. I, I don't want to take away the rest of your day. That's great. But I'm going to end with what I began with. It, it's like every single word of salt, sugar, every single sentence of salt, sugar, fat seemed to me something that I could start a conversation with and, and really dig into. And I, I greatly appreciate what you, what you put together. I can't wait to hear what comes out next. And I hope that it has, if it has half the influence on others that it did on me, it's, it's making a big difference. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I don't have to tell you how food touches everything in our lives. I meant it when I said his book intrigued at the sentence level. Every sentence, I was thought this could be something we could talk about for the podcast. All the characters in the book rang true. I mean, they are real people. Their stories were compelling. The results, what they did, whether they intended the outcome or not, it outraged me but they also motivated me to keep away from what I would call their insidious work, the results that they got of manipulating on us through our built-in reward systems. Most of all, it pointed to a playing field with incentives that motivate overproducing and getting people to eat more cheap products and keep doing that. Each person is doing what he or she thinks is best within the system. The result of everyone doing what they think is best and what feels right at the time, nonetheless, is obesity, disease, helplessness, addiction. Beyond those easily measurable results, it leads the people targeted, the people who become obese and so forth, to protect our identities. That is, if you read fat acceptance literature as best I can read it, to promote their lifestyles as if they were born that way, attacking people who disagree with them as if they were attacking accidents of birth, like racism or sexism. But we aren't helpless. However effective doof engineers have become at manipulating and controlling us, salt, sugar, fat helps us prepare. I think you'll also enjoy reading it. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.